the Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I'm the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Elisa Gabbard. Elisa Gabbard is the author of six books of poetry, essays, and criticism, including The Self Unstable, The Unreality of Memory, and most recently, the poetry collection Normal Distance, which is out today from Soft Skull Press. She also writes the On Poetry column for the New York Times. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Elisa Gabbard. So my husband and I, we met like about 15 years ago in in Boston. And I grew up in the desert in El Paso, Texas, and he grew up in Connecticut. And a little over 10 years ago, I I convinced him to move to Denver with me. There are far worse places. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I loved it. Um, I I would have been happy to stay there, honestly. I was just, you know, in my element with like the beating sun and the... (laughs) Um, the absolute lack of moisture in the air. <laughs> uh, but he really missed trees and like being moist. <laughs> and um, yeah, he always he always missed New England. So after you know after ten years, he still really missed it. And we we kind of especially during the pandemic, you know, we really wanted to like buy a house and settle somewhere. We had been living in an apartment and we just kept renewing our lease like every year. We kept saying, should we? Should we leave? Should we buy a place? Um, but we weren't, yeah, we weren't sure if we were going to stay there. So we just kept hitting that snooze button for <laughs> almost 11 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then my husband convinced me, like, let's go back east. And we're, we're trying to buy a place in Providence. It's definitely more affordable than Denver, but um, we have not found a place yet. So currently we are we are living with my mother-in-law. She has a big, mostly empty house in kind of rural Connecticut. And uh, yeah, we're sort of like woods adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, you know, like deer and raccoons and stuff pass through the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> they should start using that as like a tag on Zillow. Yeah. Woods adjacent. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's totally different. You know, it rains here. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I've been adjusting to like different, different time zone, proximity to the ocean, all those, all those changes. But I, I kind of like the cleanness of like it, it seems like my my decades have been pretty cleanly divided geographically so um so yeah i'm at the beginning ish of my 40s <laughs> so i guess uh i guess i'll be in new england for you know maybe at least 10 years <laughs> <laughs> so i i know you do a day job from home right we were just kind of talking about that a little bit mm-hmm. beforehand and you work in like content yeah. something <laughs> yeah i'm I'm a director of content, which is sort of a fancy, you know, corporate way of saying like, it's very much like being the editor of a publication. Like I'm essentially just doing editorial strategy. Yeah, they call that they call that content marketing in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that keeps you really busy and like glued to your computer or whatever you use. It it does. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine working and writing is has kind of become like maybe a part of your day. I, I'm, I know I'm just assuming, <laughs> um, but I'd imagine that like you kind of have to take 
like little breaks to like jot something down or to do something that's not your job on your computer. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about kind of how you like manage doing everything kind of from one place. Yeah, I, th I think I use like social media, my, my group chats as sort of break water cooler moments to just get mm -hmm. a little human interaction during the workday. But I, I can't really mix and match. Like my job is too demanding for that. Like, I, I manage a team of people and I'm, I'm in meetings like usually half the day with exceptions. Um, so yeah, I, I really kind of have to focus on my job when I'm doing my job. <laughs> so that means <laughs> my my other career, it's not like a secret, like they know that I'm a writer. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's completely confined to mornings, evenings, weekends, and, and like my vacation time. So mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've occasionally taken like a week off from work and not gone anywhere, just focused on you know, finishing a book or something like that. Um, yeah. So it's really hard, but it's, it just means that I, I have to kind of sacrifice things that other people do. Like, I, I don't have children. <laughs> um, right, right, right. I, I'm very, very protective of my weekend time, like especially during the day. So whenever people want to like go get brunch or lunch or something in the middle of the day, I'm like, no, <laughs> that's, that's when I read and write. So I don't like to make plans on the weekend unless they're after 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. I, I used to I used to work on East Coast time when I was in Denver and so I was working from like seven to three so I had a lot of time at the end of the day to to work on writing and reading I don't have as much now because I'm working from nine to five but I try to like wake up early and read for a little bit before work and then read again at night and then I mostly do actual writing like typing words <laughs> on a on a weekend day when I um, when I can use my like fresh morning brain and, and really write all day yeah so I guess during the week you're just kind of percolating <laughs> on things and kind of picking up bits and pieces of reading exactly. I noticed a lot of your work is is very responsive um, to reading yeah yeah because nothing interesting happens in my life <laughs> it, <laughs> I have like a really dull life so yeah all my all my thoughts come out of books <laughs> And I know you're doing a column for the New York Times, a poetry uh, column, uh, which has been really fun to read. And um, mm -hmm. uh, how on earth do you find time to do that? Is that is you just kind of it, it's part of just your general writing life? You're working on random things. You're working on a book. You're working on a column. It's kind of it's all kind of in there, and it just depends w where it comes out. Yeah, exactly. It's actually one of the least time-consuming. <laughs> parts of my kind of greater writing project because it's only four regular columns a year and then there's kind of a best of like favorite collections of the year at the um at the end of the year every year so it ends up being five columns but it's just like one per season and um yeah there are only 1200 words so but they're very thinky though yeah. you know like it may be short, but there's a lot going on in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I try to make them really dense because I, I often find I have, you know, way more to say than 1,200 words. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you feel about the word count? Like, or is it is it kind of like an annoyance or do you are you in a way like grateful for it? I, I think it's a fun constraint. I, I used to write a lot of kind of thousand word or 1500 word essays. It's, it's a good length to just kind of explore something 
small and low stakes, you know, it's, it's a fun way to just do like a, I noticed a thing essay. I have a friend who calls them that. Like I, I was, I was reading and I noticed a thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I can get really expansive with essays. I can do research for months and go on and on and on. <laughs> um, so I, I do kind of like the constraint of like, no, let's just, let's just keep it tight and just talk about a couple of related things. But it's hard when I decided I wanted to read all of Louise Glick's work when her last book came out. And then I really wanted to write about like her entire career and not just her most recent book. <laughs> and yeah, I definitely, that could have been longer, you know, but I just try to say like as much as I can, you know, I try to mm-hmm. not waste any sentences. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and we'll talk about Normal Distance, the new poetry book in a minute, but uh, it also, like, I know you have a book coming out kind of right on its on its heels. So, so this is number six, right? And then the next one will be seven. Um, yes. And I, and I remember seeing a description and it has to do with um, Rilke. <laughs> tell, tell me a bit about the, the book. Yes. Yeah, so I, I just finished like writing the new material for that. Um, I still have to actually put it all in one document and send it to my editor. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might work on that a little bit today. Um, yeah, I, I'm like afraid if I don't do that soon, something's going to happen, you know, like my computer's mm-hmm. going to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I need to finish that, but it's a lot of kind of literary essays. Um, it's kind of going back to the style of essays and the word pretty in terms of like a kind of mix of literary and personal critical memoir, that kind of thing, which is just like where I'm happiest. It's yeah. my favorite kind of thing to write. Mm-hmm. And I love reading stuff like that too. Like I love books about books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's a collection of essays like that. And a lot of them are about classics. I did a column on revisiting the classics for the Paris Review a few years back. And so those are all in there. And there's a bunch of essays about Sylvia Plath, and yeah, Rilke, Virginia Woolf, just like all all the greats that everybody wants to write about. <laughs> yeah. I like I like writing about the stuff that's totally overwritten and exhausted, you know? Because <laughs> actually <laughs> actually you can't exhaust those writers. There's like always mm. more to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, that's probably not gonna be out until twenty twenty four at this point. Oh, okay. Because I, I I begged a little bit more time just since, since I'm doing like book promo now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I need to turn that in and then get my edits and it seems like it's probably going to be spring 2024 when that gotcha. comes out. And so, so were you always in, interested in like classics, I guess, like take me back to kind of childhood. Were you always a reader? Did, were you just like an all-star in like your English class or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. As a, as a kid. Yeah. Always. Like I was always reading a book and I would reread the same books over and over again mm. because like I had them and they were there and it was sort of like playing a song on a jukebox. I could just produce that reliable feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> by reading that book again. And then like when I got a little older, like the age where I could actually drive and like go to the library myself or go to a bookstore myself. I remember sort of forming my reading list and just the most really banal way possible which is I would just look for like award winners because (laughs) nobody was giving me personalized book recommendations and the internet 
such as it is today didn't really exist yet. So the only way I knew how to pick out books was to like wander around the shelves and, you know, see what looked good based on the jacket copy and the covers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I guess I was just like, you know, a slave to prestige. But if something won the National Book Award or something, I thought, oh, well, this must be good. <laughs> yeah, so it has a seal on it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I read a lot of like award winner type literary fiction, which, you know, meant this was in the 90s, right? I was reading like John Updike and yeah. Philip Roth. Uh-huh. Um, and I actually, I, I love a lot of those writers. I, I'll like, I defend Updike <laughs> to the death. And, like, I think nobody... I saw you doing that the other day on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. People get so mad about John Updike. And I'm like, leave him alone. He's dead. <laughs> He's going to go out of print. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in college, I didn't, I didn't take a lot of English classes. I wasn't an English major. I only took a few English classes and... I actually I didn't get the sense you were from your work and there's I can it's like I can tell in your work uh-huh. that you've stu- yeah. <laughs> you've, stu- you've studied elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I took a few like uh, contemporary literature classes. Um, we're reading like 20th century novels and then I took some poetry workshops, but I didn't take any of the kind of standard English lit courses that English majors take. So I'm really underread and in that way (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I haven't read a lot of Victorian literature for example I've hardly read any so yeah there's there's these big kind of gaps in my reading past which is part of why I wanted to write that column is it wasn't so much like revisiting books that I hadn't read in a long time it was like maybe maybe I should get around to reading some of this stuff that that everybody else has read (laughs) and yeah I, I, I found that just a source of endless joy and surprise because you hear so much about a book and it's it's never what you expect like it's always so different and so much richer than your idea of it could possibly be so that was really fun for yeah. me and so what did you end up studying my guess would be psych and philosophy is that what hey, you were yeah studying? great guess yeah. <laughs> um yeah i i majored in cognitive science and linguistics so mm-hmm. cognitive science was like a multidisciplinary major which drew from the psychology department the philosophy department um computer science actually that that's where i i did the least and um and linguistics and so i i loved my linguistics classes so much that i was taking a lot of those and i realized like oh i could just do a little bit more and do a double major Hmm. But yeah, it makes sense, right? Because my like obsessions and my work are clearly like language and mm-hmm. thinking. <laughs> like yeah. there's there's still totally there. Like I love thinking in language, thinking about language, every possible combination of <laughs> those worlds. Like my my interests have been pretty consistent for twenty years. Yeah. So when at like what point maybe did you start thinking of yourself as like a poet or a writer, like somebody who can Join the conversation, I guess. Mm-hmm. I I started writing poems when I was pretty young. Yeah, I guess like, you know, in school, there's often assignments to write poetry. And that always just came really easily to me. I didn't really do it on my own as like a little, mm-hmm. as a small child. But that always came super easily to me. Cause like I could write a poem in perfect rhyme and meter 
no problem. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was a teenager, I guess, you know, typical, <laughs> like when I was 14, 15, 16, around, around then I like, I found some poets I really liked and started writing my own poetry and I got pretty into it. And then I took some poetry classes in college, but in no way was I thinking like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I can make a career out of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to my credit, right? Because for the most part, you can't <laughs> make a career out of it. But people used to always tell me, like my teachers would always tell me like my whole kind of schooling from the, the time I was really little all through college, people would always tell me like, oh yeah, you should be a writer. Hmm. And, and I was always trying to come up with some some other form of of job that I would do for money. <laughs> and it wasn't until like my senior year in college that I, I just sort of considered like, well, what if I took this a little bit more seriously? And I had a teacher at Rice, Susan Wood. We're still, we're still in touch actually. She was wonderful. And she said, oh, have you considered, you know, like getting an MFA? And she encouraged me to apply to MFA programs. And I was also applying to PhD programs in linguistics because the economy kind of sucked at the time. And yeah, I didn't really know what else to do. Like four years before when my brother graduated from college, like everybody just automatically got like (laughs) an 80K a year consulting (laughs) job, regardless of like your skill set (laughs) and experience Mm -hmm. level. They were just handing out jobs on the street. but that wasn't the case for me. <laughs> so I was like, well, I guess I'll just stay in school. And I ended up going and getting an MFA. And that just completely changed my entire relationship to writing because suddenly I was around people who took writing a lot more seriously than I ever had. You know, mm-hmm. they really like immersed themselves in poetry. They, you know, they read it, they talked about it all the time. and. I hadn't been doing that because I didn't really know any other writers. And yeah, it just it changed my life. I was like, yeah, this <laughs> this matters that much. Yeah. Um, and yeah. like I, I can make a life out of this. Yeah. It's amazing how finding community can do that. And and I know later you were editing for LitMax for a little while, right? I did, yeah. So I was a reader for Plowshares. Um, and I was also like blogging for them and stuff like that. And then after grad school, I became friends just through the internet with a poet and scientist named Simon, and he wanted to start a lit mag, and he asked me to be the poetry editor. And I did that for a few years. So, I mean, that was all just, you know, free labor of love kind of work. Oh, I'm I'm familiar. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so instructive, and I always tell young writers if they're like, having a hard time confronting the problem of rejection (laughs) that they should do some work on the other side because it gives you so much perspective in terms of like how impersonal rejection really is like it's just the fact that you're confronting so much work it's just this onslaught and you make snap decisions and it doesn't really mean anything (laughs) i feel like i'm i'm much more comfortable with rejection after having done that work yeah what was the magazine again absent magazine it was all online and there were you know maybe four or five issues it didn't didn't last forever yeah. <laughs> i assume it's not still 
on the internet. I haven't looked in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine, you know, at that time, you're probably working on the poems for your first book. <laughs> is, that, is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me what, like, that was like, I guess, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, you, you get your collection and then you're about to do a, a bunch more books. <laughs> but I just, I just, uh, I'm interested in kind of that time in your life where, you know, all this is kind of coming together into a first book. Were yeah. you kind of like shocked or were you like, yeah, damn right. I've been working. <laughs> on this <laughs> <story>. <laughs> a very no, I mean, th th that time, like before you have a book feels really slow and <laughs> it feels like it's never going to happen until it happens. And yeah, so I had I had this like MFA thesis, right? So I'd written a creative thesis. Emerson was a three-year program, but that was not my first book. Like, thank God, because um, I yeah I, w I like cleaned out an old computer recently and I found <laughs> my thesis oh, and read it and it was like dreadful. I, I was actually shocked how bad it was. I I didn't think it was going to be that bad. <laughs> so I'm. Like, I'm so glad that that was not my first book. Um, yeah. There are maybe, like, two or three poems from, from that manuscript that ended up in my first book. Mm -hmm. But basically what happened after I graduated from Emerson is, you know, I was, I was still writing. I was in a couple of little, like, writing groups, writing a lot of poems, but still just kind of trying to find my way. Like, I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I hadn't really found a thing yet. And what, what kind of changed my whole trajectory was that a lot of poets I knew were doing this thing called Napo Rimo, mm -hmm. um, National Poetry Writing Month. So it's just, it's the poetry version of, you know, National Novel Writing Month that people do in November. And it's, it's a semi-organized thing where people would write a poem every day all through the month of April. And this is like the blog era. So all these poets have blogs. And part of the project was that you have to post the drafts on your blog. So you have to kind of let go of the idea of perfection. Like it's just about volume and, and then sharing your work. So I thought this was very silly. I was like, ugh. <laughs> why why should you privilege quantity over quality you know <laughs> like I was like that's not my thing I was you know chatting chatting with a friend about it and decided to write this kind of like joke poem I was I was honestly like making fun of the whole idea mm -hmm. and so I write this kind of joke poem that has like no point and no stakes I'm trying to write it as fast and as sloppily as possible and I'm midway through the poem and I'm like oh wait this is good this is a really good poem. <laughs> it was unlike anything I had ever written before. Mm. So it was like I tricked myself into finding a totally new voice or just a mode of writing a poem. Yeah. Or maybe a persona, is it, I guess? Yeah. Maybe, in a way? Yeah. Um, but it was like it was like a stylistic shift that I had no idea was gonna happen until I was doing it. Interesting. But it it occurred because I started I started out not trying to write a good poem. It was like I'd conned yeah. myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I get that. Yeah. So I, I ended up, um, you know, doing the rest of the game. I, I wrote a poem every day that April, and then those poems ended up being my first published chapbook. So before I had, you know, a first full-length book. So that, that first friend who, had, who I'd been talking to about, you know, oh, no, no, Ramos, so, so stupid. He had a friend 
who had a little chapbook press and he mm-hmm. wanted to publish those poems as a chapbook. Um, and then a year or so after that, I can't remember, the two of them and a few other poetry friends started a small poetry press. It's Birds LLC. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to publish my first book. So I had always kind of heard, like, you probably you probably know who's, who's going to publish your first book. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at that time, poetry was very much ruled by, like, um, small and independent presses. Yeah, so I, I sort of... I sort of stumbled into my first book that way. That's the French exit. And then your next three books are all with the same publisher, right? Black Ocean. Mm -hmm. And you do like your uh, prose poetry, kind (laughs) of, which Uh is the self-unstable poetry, which is the Judy poems, right? The persona poems about the character from the Wallace Shawn play. Mm -hmm. And then the word pretty, right? Which is the essays. And and you mentioned... um, blogging a few times and if I remember I saw something about like a lot of the pieces in the word pretty had come from things you'd done for your blog and it's it's interesting to think about now where like people still have blogs but it's like nobody really uses them anymore and it's more it's like newsletters and like right yeah I serving the same purpose blogs entirely came back just in the form of substack or whatever instead of instead of it being on a site where people can go to it whenever they want (laughs) It shows up in your inbox. Yeah, it's almost like blog is a dirty word, so they had to like rebrand it. Yeah, <laughs> in like a, yeah, in like a new way or something. Totally, but it's exactly the same. Yeah, and so blogging was really important to you in your practice, right? So, um, do you do you like miss that, or do you feel like because do you have a you don't have a Substack, do you? Or do, or do no, you? I don't. No, I don't. Um, but yeah, I think it it was similar to the way that poem happened in terms of. It being a very low stakes environment for writing just like as play like I could write about anything because it's my space I wasn't trying to get it through an editor I didn't have to pitch anyone <laughs> I could just write about anything I wanted short long whatever and I think that was really good for me as a writer because it was just practice basically like very low risk practice but I still was publishing it, making it public, and my name was on it. So I, I cared about, you know, the, the, the quality of the writing and the insights. Like, I, I didn't want to post anything that wasn't interesting to me, at least. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was just kind of like, it's just like doing scales or whatever. I was just, I was just getting, I was just getting better without thinking too much about getting better. Yeah. And, um, so how did so how did the relationship with Black Ocean start? So I'm always a fan when a writer <laughs> works with the same press <laughs> for yeah. a few books. I don't even know why. I it, it's just kind of like I don't know. It's just I guess I was the same with like in a way like it feels like with um, maybe with like mu- you're you know you're just making a musical <laughs> reference like mm-hmm. with musical acts where like on a certain label they do a certain kind of work. I, I guess in uh-huh. a way. And then when they like switch labels, it's like the work changes. And I guess and and I think that's kind of the. Would you say that's kind of the case? You know, with this too, I th- I think like those three books on Black Ocean are kind of like in a world. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, I do think Unreality so. of Memory, which we'll talk about in a second, like that kind of it, it's like a, for lack of a better word, like a major label debut. Like it's the same, <laughs> it's like the same person, but it's something feels bigger about it. Maybe the yes. scope of it, I guess. And um, yeah, I wonder if you talk a little bit about um, that time doing those three books with um, Black Ocean. Yeah. So the. The publisher of Black Ocean, Jonica Stuckey, he 
was also like a Boston area writer and I knew him just through the poetry world, you know, readings and so forth. And I had met him like pretty early on in the genesis of Black Ocean. Um, like I remember discovering, <laughs> you know, quote unquote discovering um, Zach Schomburg's poetry at a reading in Austin at AWP when I was baby, baby poet. It was the first time I ever went to AWP. And there was this great reading at this outdoor bar in Austin. And I read and Zach Schomburg read and a bunch of other poets. And I remember Ajanika approaching Zach to see if he had a manuscript and ended up publishing his book, The Man Suit, which I think was, for a long time, it was definitely one of their bestsellers. I don't know if it still is, but it went through like many, many printings. It was very popular. So like I knew about the press and they had an open reading period. And when I had my, that first manuscript, the French exit, before I knew that Birds was going to publish it, I had sent it to Black Ocean during their open reading period. And Jonica told me it came close, but not quite. And then when I had a second manuscript, I offered it to Birds, but they said it was going to be like a few years because they had their next books lined up and everybody wasn't even really able to read it right away. And so they couldn't promise they were going to publish it. And they were like, feel free to send it out, you know, like keep us in mind, but feel free to send it out if you don't want to wait. And so I submitted it to Black Ocean again. And yeah, I think... I think it was actually just after we had moved to Colorado that Jonica called me and told me that he wanted to publish it. And um, yeah, and they did, you know, a really beautiful job with it. And I, I got actually a lot more attention than the French exit had. I got a lot of coverage and reviews and I just, you know, kept kept working with them. Um, yeah. <laughs> for my next couple of books because like they, yeah. they had done a great job and they wanted to keep publishing my work and yeah. it was all good. Yeah. And I, it was, it was almost just, well, it really was just luck that they did the word pretty as well because they didn't typically publish prose collections. Right. They, were most, they were mostly right. a poetry press and Jonica happened to be at a little lit fest in Iowa city at the same time as me and heard me read an essay from the word pretty and he asked me if I had a manuscript of those. And I said, yes. And he said, I want to start a prose imprint. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> this could work out really well. And yeah. it did. Yeah. So he published the word pretty as well. Um, and yeah, beautiful job with that, too. And that got a lot more attention than I was expecting as well. Yeah. And then so I guess flash forward to 2020, which is when Unreality of memory comes out, which is, uh -huh. you know, an essay collection um, about disaster and tech and the self and kind of the persistent feeling the end is near uh -huh. <laughs> and quite a few other things, um, you know, and it blends a lot of your interests of reading and kind of these bigger topics with um, kind of, I don't like how to describe the way your work moves. I don't know, like a personal active thought process <laughs> with kind of fresh associations and, you know, threading different things and yeah, I love that. Um, kind of n narrating through, sometimes narrating through your research paths, I guess, at some points. And yeah, kind of exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's like the quality, and I, the, a quality of your work, and I think I've heard other people say, like, versions of this, too, where it's like when you read um, your work in general, not just this book, I think the other books as well, where it's like, I think this way, but it's like, I don't, but it feels like I do, <laughs> or it's like, I want to. 
Oh, um, I love and so that. It's, like, it's kind of like identifying, I guess, with like this, um, you know, of course, like hyper um, shaped, you know, like thought process, you know, and, and cutting out the boring bits, I guess, I guess, mm -hmm. in, in a way where like it's 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 interesting because it's like I'm reading something that's way smarter than I am, but I'm like identifying with like, oh, yeah, I could have said like I, I thought that, but I just didn't articulate, <laughs> that. I just didn't articulate that yet. Yeah. People do tell me things like that a lot. Yeah. Like, oh, I felt I felt like I'd had that thought, but just didn't know yeah. how to say it. Yeah. Yeah. But but like when I really think about it, I'm like, no, I, I definitely did not. <laughs> I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> and <laughs> like I just get I don't know. It's it, it's interesting. But I feel like um, like one of your great skills in your writing is like you're a great observer of the self. Like mm -hmm. you're an observer of your own consciousness, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like in a way, I feel like sometimes I'll re like read a line or a paragraph and it's like, it's like you're almost like othering yourself like you're both yourself and like an other like at the same time like a a sort of remove i think that's like seems kind of like almost like that same quality we're like oh yeah I, i'm that removed from myself sometimes <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like yeah maybe on the page or like when i think about my thinking i am but yeah anyway i think it's it's a really deft quality of the writing to do that but i remember when the book came out you know, it was 2020 and people were like, oh, it's prophetic. <laughs> She's mm -hmm. going to say about pandemics. And it was like mm -hmm. this really weird timing. I remember like, like there would be like publicity coming out and then I'd kind of like see you react and you'd be like, no, <laughs> stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wonder if you would talk just a little bit about kind of the weird timing, I guess, of that book coming out in yeah. um, 2020 and, you know, these people... <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> like putting the profit badge on you oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of a strange way because you wrote about pandemics yeah um yeah so I I started writing that book in like 2015 2016 so you know in the lead up to Trump's election and like everybody else or almost everybody else you know I was just really kind of glued to the news because reality had seemed to come unglued <laughs> yeah. and everybody just seemed to be in this constant state of disbelief all the time and I was totally there too um and panic you know just like things had really gone off the rails and at the time it felt important to to take on kind of more serious topics <laughs> I feel like I'm writing jacket copy now. It seemed urgent and necessary. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. It seemed urgent and necessary to write about, like, the disasters we were experiencing, <laughs> the, the disasters that I could see coming. But also, you know, I found strange comfort in, like, immersing myself in research, feeling like I understood things better and especially reading about disasters in the past because it gave me that sense of perspective and like, oh, people, people lived through that. Not everyone, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but some yeah. people, yeah. um, and you know, the world adapted. So it just it made me feel better. It was a, it was a good distraction. And at, at the time I was also, you know, working with an agent and, I, I just suddenly gotten more ambitious. Basically, the word pretty had opened some doors where I was able to write for some like bigger venues than I ever had before. So I was writing, you know, longer work and, you know, more serious work. And I just basically felt like, oh, I, I guess I don't have to keep doing these low stakes indie books. Like if I wanted, mm. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could try to do something 
bigger and you know maybe make a little bit more money because like I I love I love all my books but you know I didn't I didn't make money off any of them (laughs) (laughs) until um until I started working with an agent you know she encouraged Mm -hmm. me to to think a little bigger and try to sell something to a big five publisher and so forth so it was part of that I was you know I was thinking about like you know what what kind of book would a bigger publisher potentially buy Mm-hmm. And that's how that collection kind of started to come together. And once I'd written a couple of essays about disasters, it was kind of like, well, what other kinds of disaster am I interested in? Would I want to spend a few months researching? And I just, you know, decided I wanted to dig into like the Black Death and um, pandemics in general. You know, I, I read a lot about like rabies and Ebola. And it was not because I thought, we were on the verge (laughs) of a pandemic. I just, like, scientists have been warning everyone for many, many, many years that... I didn't didn't predict a (laughs) pandemic. I was just reading. Yeah, exactly. I was just reading. I was just reading, and many other people had predicted that there would be a pandemic if, um, if we didn't take more measures against one, and... It was just an awful coincidence that their predictions finally came true in 2020, which is the year my book came out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, <laughs> it was not great. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was doing really badly at the time when my book came yeah. out. Like, it, it was not, um, it was not the book launch I had hoped for. Right. And um, I imagine, so I know, you know, we'll talk about normal distance. So you go back to poetry. And I know, like, when I was reading the book, I recognized poems I'd seen come out in maybe the past few years, I think. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that you were writing these poems while you were, you know, at home, either finishing this book or waiting for the book to come out or... I was, yeah. I, I know that I wrote the first poem that went into this book in 2016, because it was for some kind of little like benefit that a friend of mine had set up and it was in the wake of Trump's election. So she was trying to raise money to donate to some cause. I can't even remember what cause, but I wrote a poem for that and just liked it. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) oh yeah, I haven't written poems in a while. This is fun. And so, yeah, I, I don't really remember, you know, again, probably because it was during the Trump years and, my mind has been erased, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, Seriously. I don't really remember like how I went back and forth between essays and poems at all. But I know that I've been writing these poems for, you know, like five years and uh, they definitely changed over the course of those five years. Like the shorter ones in normal distance were written towards the end, um, like during the first year of the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see like overlap in some of those things you were writing about in um, Unreality of Memory. You know, yeah, like absolutely. The same kind of preoccupations or interests like suffering, boredom, self-awareness, catastrophe. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dystopia, utopia, consciousness, time, <laughs> desire. Existence. Yeah. Often there was there was like some little line or bit of language or a fact or something that either didn't get worked into an essay or did but I was just still thinking about it and still interested in it and that that would be like the the loose thread that started the poem Mm. 
you know, and many of the poems in the book, like, take on this form where, like, a stanza is a single sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of wraps onto the next line, and then it's kind of paragraphed. Like, that's kind of the line in the stanza. Not in all the poems. You know, there's more traditionally, like, lineated poems. But a lot of them take on this, and, like, they, like, each little, I guess, sentence unit, I call them. Uh-huh. I don't know if the stanza is the right way. I guess it is. But each sentence I, I struggle unit. with this, too. I was like, should I call them, like, singlets? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's too much like a, what a wrestler wears or something right. like that. <laughs> um, but they, you know, like, they, like, the each one kind of, like, accum- they accumulate, like, they associate, they juxtapose. Uh, these different, like, ideas or, like, instances of, like, observations. And one thing that I really like about your work is, like, it's not afraid to be abstract and then so often it's like mingled in with the concrete physical world like sometimes you'll have like a sentence that like starts off with this abstract idea and then it like turns <laughs> into like a really kind of like poetic image or like vice versa and, and sometimes it's just abstract or sometimes it's just an image but um you described it really well oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you um but it's it's like the more abstract parts like well even the concrete parts like they kind of have like an aphoristic quality like in a way like I wouldn't call them aphorisms but they kind of have that feeling um and it's like it feels like a collage of like notes like that's why earlier I was like I feel like you're probably like writing random things like throughout the like while you're working your community might turn go to a journal and just like bust off this thought about suffering (laughs) suffering real fast or something like that you described them so well like that's exactly how I try to describe them to people um but it feels like when other people talk about my work they don't they just don't capture the formal qualities quite as well. So, mm. wow, that's great. Oh, well, thank you. Um, but yeah, I you're right now that I think about it because I I do use Twitter like a public notebook all the time. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that, you know, for 12 years or something. And I do often use my tweets as lines or starting points for a poem, or I did in this book anyway. Um, so yeah, I... I am doing what you say in terms of like writing down a line like while I'm working. So I just don't think mm-hmm. of it that way when I'm putting right. it on Twitter. <laughs> it's only later when I'm like, oh, that sounds like a line for a poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, you know, and kind of like I was saying earlier where it feels like thinking, <laughs> but it's like way more boiled down and like way more direct and like way more shaped. Um, <laughs> I was wondering like, you know, you mentioned your kind of starting points, but I, I'd love to hear a little bit about like the process of like creating some of these pieces in a book. Like mm-hmm. I, I know some of them might start with just something you kind of wrote offhand. Is it a collection of things you wrote offhand or is it like at some point you just like put a few things together and then you kind of just start riffing and then yeah. like delete the things <laughs> that don't work? Kind of. Yeah. So so the first one that I wrote, I think, is the one where the first line is there was a metal band that was just called Death. Mm-hmm. And so. I had, I like needed a starting point, right? I had agreed to write a poem for this thing. And I was like, wait, how do I write a poem again? I hadn't written a poem in a little while. I, whenever I finish a book, I have to reinvent the process of writing a poem all over again mm. <laughs> or, or teach myself how to write a poem again. Um, and I, I went to Twitter and searched my own tweets for the word, the words like die, death, dead. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I got some like starting points. And so it did start as collage, yeah. And then it was it was very much like <laughs> like writing, except that it was it started with 
the lines already existing and I just had to arrange them and, and edit yeah. them. And I, I think I filled in some gaps, but I had a ton of <laughs> tweets about death. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like I had already written, you know, 40, 50 lines about death in my life. And I was just like, I just have to put them together. <laughs> um, so yeah. that's how the first one came about. It was mostly like things I had already thought or said or written about death that I just had gathered all together you know like with a little with a little mortar but not a lot and then I, I started several others in that same way but then like once I'd gotten into that rhythm like once I'd created that form I could just write that way I didn't have to start with the start with the tweets I didn't have to start with the existing yeah. thoughts um, <laughs> right. I could just I could just write a poem in that form and create the same voice but from scratch but I, I, I stayed true to the process in terms of using kind of repeating ideas and pieces of language. So, you know, all the poems are kind of naturally repetitive and they're just sort of circling yeah. around a word or a yeah. phrase. Yeah. And those types of poems in the book, like they have, I think I mentioned like kind of like an essayistic quality, but of course, like they're not <laughs> essays, mm -hmm. um, you know, and like the poems, like. I guess are just unburdened from having to be true in a way, in a yes. way like, and, and yes. I think I've heard you, I think I've heard you say this before about um, the self unstable, like a long time ago. And tell me if I'm misattributing <laughs> mis <laughs> you. I think it was you, but you, you were saying that um, in a way, like sometimes you'll just write something down and if it sounds good, <laughs> like it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. Or that you like believe that it's true. It's just like the sound of it is just kind of like an interesting thought. Um, and that it's more like fiction, I guess, in a way. It is. It is. And I think that's the thing about aphorisms. Like I love the aphoristic mode because it looks like an assertion. It's not hedged or qualified in any way, but you don't have to believe it. It's like... It's just there for your contemplation. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's interesting. Like, it's a poem. It's interesting language. Yeah, right? like a, like a painting. Um, mm. It's more like, what if this were true? Yeah. I mean, but what I what I like about that also is the fact that you know you're not going to feel the same way about a line every time you come to it. Like sometimes you might agree with it, and sometimes you might not. Insofar as you mm. can, you know, quote unquote, agree with a poem, but um, it's philosophy it's it's thinking it's not meant to be final it's meant to encourage more thinking yeah um and you know maybe you already answered this but like when you're preoccupied on certain thoughts right like those that time when you're at sometimes you're writing a poem <laughs> for this book and then other times you're working on an essay for unreality of memory like do you have like is it just like a feeling you have where you're like I kind of want to take this into a poem I don't really feel like <laughs> going all the way into an essay um, is that kind of like how you decide just kind of like a, just a reaction? Like, I just want to do this as a poem or I want to do it as an essay. Or is there like something in the idea that makes you like leads you, I guess, in like one direction or the other? It's hard to describe because it's not like I decide. It doesn't feel mm. like I decide in that way. Like some ideas come as lines of poetry and some ideas come as something else. And you just kind of recognize it when you see it, I guess. Yeah, like, it's it's usually I I feel like I can't be in the same mode at once, you know, like it's a state you like flip into 
And so when I'm working on an essay, I'm working on an essay. And when I'm mm -hmm. writing a poem, I'm writing a poem. I just can't be in both states at once. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not th I'm not thinking line by line like, oh, no, that would be better in an, in an essay. You know right. what I mean? So you, do you have you ever had the experience where you're writing an essay and you're like, no, this is a poem? <laughs> or have you been like writing a poem where you're like, this is probably an essay? Or that just like it, it seems that kind of separate for you? Separate. Well, because like, I mean, I write about all the same things all the time, as you say, like right. I've, I've written essays about suffering and I've written poems about suffering. So it's not yeah. like it's not like one topic lends itself more to one or the other. It's just it just comes out. I just yeah. <laughs> and I, I do say different kinds of things when I'm in the poem setting than when I'm in the essay setting. But yeah, I mean, I, I could see a sentence being in both, and I probably have done this before. I've probably used the same sentence mm. and, and I say that I also have in a poem somewhere. But the, the setting completely changes it, you know? Like if you have that space all around it, like in one of these poems, it that makes room for the idea just in isolation, you know, when you remove it from prose, it feels totally different. You consider it in a different way. It changes the pace at which you process it. And I feel like pace is a big part of what happens when you flip from one setting to the other. Like, what pace are you thinking? Yeah. And I guess also in a way, like, poetry moves, like, the burden of context. Yes. <laughs> or, or like, having having to show your work or something. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, you put your notes in the back, but <laughs> it's just so, it just seems a lot more free, I guess. It is. Yeah. It is very freeing and I, I think that's why I always return to it because there's a lot of um, responsibility when you're writing nonfiction. Yeah so and then I'm, I know I've been talking about this one kind of <laughs> poem I guess in the book but as I mentioned there's lineated poems in the book too that have a different feel in some way they're even more clipped I yeah. guess like they're more like brushstroked mm -hmm. kind of like that blend of detail abstraction I was talking about earlier. I guess in a way it's like a similar but different question as before but like when you're working on the poem like how do you know it's going to be a lineated poem um, <laughs> you know like is it is it just yeah I don't know is that another thing where it's just kind of like it's just gonna it's just starts coming out lineated and so this is going to be a lineated poem or is there like a is there a decision there it's, I mean similar so I wrote the short poems in like a slightly different era of my life I guess um because most of the longer ones I did right before, uh, before the pandemic, and I was, they were getting harder and harder to write. I think I think it's William Meredith who said, poems are like slow to arrive because you have to wait for astonishment of insight. I love mm. that phrase, astonishment of insight, and that feels true to me. Like if a poem doesn't have astonishing insights in it, like what's the point? So. It was like I felt like I had exhausted all my interesting ideas already and I didn't have enough <laughs> to build those longer poems out of anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting together once a week with um, – it was my husband and I and our friend Mike, Michael Joseph Walsh. He's also a poet. And we were just kind of having these little salons where we would bring something that we had written and we would each share them. So I wanted to produce new work for that. Like, I wanted to try to write a poem a week so I'd have something to read. And one of the poems, and I can't remember which one, had sort of come to me in that shape. Like, the shorter lines and the contained little tercet stanzas. 
and they were short enough that I was like, okay, this, this I can do one per week because they're more imagistic and they don't have to have 10 astonishing insights. <laughs> like just maybe like one or two little slightly astonishing <laughs> insights. They just felt like they were more interlude like in that way. Like the pressure was a little bit reduced. So yeah, I, cr- I created yeah. that form. And whenever you have a little form, it's like, it feels like a vase and then you can just pour your thoughts into the vase and they take on the shape of the vase like liquid. So once I decided this, the shape will work for a little while, then the lines automatically come in that shape. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like they come and then you have to change them. They just, they evolve to fit the form. Yeah. And so like when, when you do break the line, I feel like, you know, in a book where the lines aren't broken, <laughs> when you do break the line, it feels um, like a very intentional thing. Like, obviously, line breaks are intentional. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. But it does feel, especially in this book, that it's very intentional. And, like, sometimes I feel like in those poems, that kind of, like, I feel like the astonishment of insight kind of comes from the surprise of what comes after the break, in a way. Mm. Like, would you agree with that? I guess, like, in a way, my broad question is, why lineate? Like when a writer is breaking the line, why? Like why, why, why do it? Even if you're just, you know, pouring it in to fit the mold, like when that line breaks, it's cueing you maybe to make the astonishing or astonishment of insight. Oh yeah. No, I, I think it changes the way you think when you know you're, you're going to write in lines, you start thinking in lines and it's just you know, a fundamentally different way to write or think than prose. I'm, and I'm really glad you, you like noticed and commented on the contrast because I've seen some people quote from these longer poems and they, you know, they use the virgule, like they put the line break in. Oh, uh, where, where it wraps? Like, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have, um, I have a real anxiety about it. Because I'm like, do people not realize that's just the margin? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I've completely failed. And you know, that's that's like a that's a layout problem. Um, but <laughs> no, I'm really I'm I'm really glad you read them for what they are, which is you know, prose lines just breaking at the margin. So yeah, I think when I'm writing a poem and lines, I'm I'm thinking in the shorter units of language, and so it has to be even more concentrated to be like interesting at that density. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't like short poems that I don't feel are doing enough, but I often feel like, Oh, short poems are just doing less. Like <laughs> you just, <laughs> <laughs> like you wrote less. I better have one great astonishment. Yeah. Of insight it's in just there. like <laughs> this. I mean, this is like the, the compelling content is proportional to the space you're taking up on the page. Like I often right. just think, Oh, I wish you, I wish you kept writing. Like there's, mm. there's not enough there to hold my interest. Um, so I feel like if I'm going to write a shorter poem, um, it has to be more interesting at the line level. And I, I don't know how I make that calculation, like what exactly my standards are for me to decide that's, yeah. that's interesting enough to stand on its own. But obviously that, 
calculation is happening somewhere as part of the process. Yeah, at some point it just kind of happens. And <laughs> we kind of talk about it for a while, but in the end it just kind of happens. Yeah. And, and so this question, my next question is kind of like nuts and bolts. And so just keep in mind, I'm not a poet. So if it sounds like a really stupid question, <laughs> but there's one thing I noticed in um, like all poetry, like that I've read, um, you know, like classics uh, versus like contemporary poetry is like when you are lineating even in a whole, in a in this in these poems, the next line, even though it's like the same like sentence in a way, like is the ne the first letter is capitalized, right? Mm -hmm. I know that's like a like a more classical tradition, and then like in contemporary poetry, like at some point it seemed like if I put my poetry books in a line at some point there was just a jump and everyone stopped doing that yeah <laughs> and um so at one point it was normal and then at one point it became not normal and then i noticed in your book that the in those poems that first line uh is is capsed and yeah. it, it just made me wonder about the stylistic decision to do it or not do it because like the you know the few times i've written poetry like I'll look, I like I just use the lowercase, I guess, but like I'll go back and read, you know, something older, and I'll be like, now, now, why did they do that? <laughs> and then so when I was reading yours, I was like, what an interesting decision. Is it just kind of like an ampersand in a way? Like maybe it's a little arbitrary, <laughs> just kind of like how you want it to look. Or to you, is there, you know, I got the columnist for the New York Times here. Like, is there, is there like um, something going on in your head of like why you would why you would do one or and not the other yeah. as a poet? You're actually a really careful, noticey reader of poetry. It's impressive <laughs> for a non-poet. Um, yeah, I I always think about decisions like that. And even if I want the decision to look kind of careless and artless, that doesn't mean I haven't considered it. But I did consider it mm -hmm. with these. And I chose that capitalization just to even further emphasize the idea like well, these are really lines like this is mm. this is a line as an individual unit even though probably half the time ish it isn't jammed and it continues onto the next line i still wanted the line to be like extra liney you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um because it is mixed in with these other poems where the line is sort of not a line. The line is just a right. sentence. And so I think I was just in increasing that that contrast even more. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't usually do that. Like if you go back to yeah. um, either the Judy poems or the French exit, the and jam lines are never capitalized that way. Yeah. I, I, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, I guess she was just reading a lot of classic poetry. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, it, it's I guess in poetry, like, I just assume everything that happens yeah. is like for a reason, or you know. Well, ninety-five percent of the time, I don't know. I, I I try to give poets the benefit of the doubt, but I do, for example, often think the choice to use an ampersand versus the word "and" because a lot of poets mix them is completely mm. arbitrary. Like, <laughs> I can't <laughs> I can't find a reasoning, but I also don't really care. You know, I think I think it's kind of great when poetry makes or any kind of writing makes some decisions that feel arbitrary I think it's like necessary yeah. I, and I I feel like I may have committed to that stylistic choice because whichever one I wrote first I did that and so I just decided like oh this is kind of going to be one of the constraints of these because again when I'm sort of inventing a form to write in I'm essentially inventing constraints and I just decided well that's one of them and I, it might be because like 
the first little three line stanza I wrote, they were all in stopped. And so they were all capitalized for that reason. But then I just continued the pattern, even when I wasn't in stopping the lines. I don't remember um, super crisply, but I'm guessing that's kind of how it came about. And then I, you know, continued to do it because I liked the effect. Yeah. And so, you know, earlier we mentioned, you know, you, the, you already have the next book done. It won't come out for a little while, but it's done. So um, I'm wondering where you're at now. <laughs> are you are you even thinking about another book, or are you just kind of in a let's see where I want to go, or or you have or you've been kind of writing it in a new way on something else lately? Yeah, no, I'm on? I'm definitely wondering what next. But in mm -hmm. this this great like I have this chasm of freedom <laughs> because <laughs> I've known the next thing I wanted to do for a long time and right now I don't know what the next thing I want to do is so it feels very free I'm just I'm taking on a few kind of little assignments um, because I have time I wasn't I, I couldn't agree to a lot or pitch a lot in the past year or so because I've needed to, to focus on finishing this book that I just finished so mm -hmm. now I can kind of do whatever I want. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's my conversation with Elisa Gabbert. You should definitely check out her new book, Normal Distance, and all her other books. And don't forget to check out our books, too, over at autofocuslit.com books. That'd be mighty cool of you. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.